of uh, our favorite candidates. Imagine that they were doing the same thing to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren and uh, think about that a little more. So anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Stay tuned for The Heather McCoy Show. You're listening to KBOO Portland. The time now is 10 o'clock. Coming up next, it's the Heather McCoy Show. Heather welcomes Chrissy Stroop to the talk about the article, the, the Gospel According to Mike Pence. There's a terrifying thought. At 11, it's Book Waves. And at 11.30, it's Black Book Talk, interviewing authors and by uh, interviews and <laughs> discussions of works by African-American authors. Don't forget that you can hear all these programs after they air on KBOO.fm or on iTunes and Google Play. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, unless otherwise noted. The Development Committee will meet the first Wednesday of each month at 4.30 p.m. Did you know that KBOO podcasts all our news and talk shows? You can find the podcast on KBOO's website, kboo.fm, on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. Just search for your favorite show and hit subscribe to get all the latest episodes downloaded to your favorite device. Or search for KBOO on iTunes and Google Play to get all the KBOO podcasts. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at KBOO.FM. And now it's time for the Heather McCoy Show. Heather McCoy Show. Okay. Welcome to the Heather McCoy Show. Uh, so we got off to a little bit of a weird start. Um, 
So uh, joining me is one of the main intellectual forces behind the ex-evangelical movement. Um, his, her name's Chrissy Stroop. She is the creator of the hashtag Empty the Pews, Alt Christian Facts, Exposed Christian Schools. She's here to discuss her latest article for Playboy.com entitled The Gospel According to Mike Pence. Welcome to the show, Chrissy. Thanks, Heather. It's great to be here. Um, we're going to we're just have... My headphones are going now, um, so I think it's uh, her microphone that needs to be turned on. Um, so we're having a little bit of a technical issue here. You're listening to The Heather McCoy Show. This is KBOO Portland. Um, thanks for tuning in this morning. Um, so um, let's see if we're going to get the microphone on. There we go. I can hear something. Um, so... Um, so what's it what is actually evangelical for listeners who may have not heard of the term before uh so it's basically a kind of catch-all term to refer to people who grew up in uh what we now tend to call evangelical and fundamentalist churches um we generally associate the term with people who grew up in conservative mostly white evangelicalism uh and have now rejected that Hmm. so um you know, you tend to have beliefs like young earth creationism, uh, like abortion is absolutely evil and must be banned in all or at least mostly all circumstances. Um, you know, it's, it's the sort of culture warring, quote unquote, old time religion, even though it's not really super old time. You know, it's a pretty modern expression of American nationalist Christianity. Yeah. And we were in the in the Facebook group. Uh, there is somebody that posted a meme that was showed up on an evangelical relative of theirs with Fred Flintstone and I think I mentioned the fact that evangelicals with their young earth theology think that the Flintstones are a documentary and not a a cartoon show (laughs) well you know uh, as my Russian friends like to say in every joke there's a grain of joke uh huh yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they certainly do think that uh, you know dinosaurs and humans lived together in the Garden of Eden, and then after the Garden of Eden, until Noah's flood, pretty much caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, which you know happened. They think around, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the date, like 1500 BCE mm-hmm. or something. Well, they would say BC, of course. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they, um, they believe the world was created in 4004 BC in many cases. I mean, some are not so like dogmatic about that date, but I was actually taught that in a Christian school Bible class. So that would be an alt Christian facts hashtag. <laughs> oh, yeah, Christian alt facts. Christian yeah. alt facts, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> hashtag Christian alt facts. So um, oh, yeah. Let me just say, too, if people want to get more information about that, um, Recently, uh, Professor Julie Ingersoll of the um, University of North Florida and I and another friend of ours who is anonymous on Twitter, but she tweets under at QuiverfulTwee1. We visited the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter in Kentucky. There are these (laughs) wacky, I say wacky, but they're also quite dangerous, uh, you know, quote unquote, museums that try to present um, Noah's Ark and the history of the book of Genesis, you know, as if they're actual factual history. Uh, and so they show like animatronic dinosaurs with humans together and um, we did some Twitter threads on that so if you you want to try and look those up there's a lot of there's some video footage. There's a lot of pictures that we documented from the trip. I've still got more material that I need to put out <laughs> later. <laughs> I, when, when you talk about that, I think about the scene in Idiocracy where the dinosaur is wearing the Nazi armband and then the un is um, coming to defeat, defeat that one. <laughs> or it's like, what? Well, no, I do want to go to the time machine. <laughs> so, 
Oh wow! I I enjoy the fact that you uh, like the the um, archaeological like you know visiting sites like that because I went to TVN once because I'm from Orange County mm-hmm. and I got to see the gold <laughs> chairs and I got to see the 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 our audacious gift shop and if, <laughs> if anyone's not familiar with TVN it, they've toned themselves down but the previous owners of TVN Paul and Jan Crouch uh, they were like Trump on steroids there was like gold everywhere and like these really gaudy like uh, what do you call them like murals of Jesus like touching Moses and all this other stuff and um, so like yeah I've been to focus on the family that was an mm-hmm. event um, so I've, I, I, <laughs> I like yeah. going to those places you know I lived in Colorado Springs from 1993 to 1995 and focus on the family had just moved there but I don't remember I don't believe I ever did go inside focus on the family but boy you know speaking of kitsch and gift shops um arc encounter is really something else and i'm not (laughs) saying everyone should go there i mean i i I get that you don't want to give money to um you know these kind of authoritarian christians and their ridiculous ministries like answers in genesis i mean we laugh at it but these are the people who are currently in power in the united states that this is exactly the group of right-wing christians that have an unprecedented level of access to donald trump i mean their main sort of current um, TV network, Pat Robertson's network, you know, CBN has uh, exclusive access. Like, for example, when Trump did his Middle East trip, yeah, he was accompanied in his entourage by quote unquote journalists from the Christian Broadcasting Network. I did not know that. Yeah, it was really, oh. it was really something. And I mean, I mean, that was all about, you know, particularly the visit to Israel and then the move of the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, was all about pandering to these right-wing Christians who believe that the rapture is going to happen soon, that Jesus is coming back soon and he's going to take them up to heaven. Yeah. One thing, one more thing to get all the funnies out before we go into more serious stuff. Uh, One of the funniest things in um, Focus on the Family is they have a montage of different pictures of uh james dobson one of them was in the in the 50s and he had a letterman jacket on and he and he looked like uh biff from back to the future <laughs> and it's like come to jesus butthead you know <laughs> like, like, but like of course they've got the old family pictures like i mean this is not just a an evangelical thing although it is an evangelical thing i think but it's also like a thing with family businesses in the south Oh, um, like have you ever been to like uh, Lambert's Cafe? They've got a couple of locations in the South, home of the Throwed Rolls. Yes, Throwed. They pick them up and throw them, and they use the southern past participle uh-huh. of the verb. Anyway, uh, they have like all these family pictures on the walls, like a little shrine to their family. And um, in the Creation Museum in Kentucky, like there's also this little corner next to a chapel where Ken Ham has like a picture of himself and then a picture of his parents. And it's like this little homage to his parents. So, you know, there's this really weird thing about, well, focusing on the family among conservative Christians. Is it because they value the hierarchy and that umbrella that we've seen where it's just like the dad (laughs) is the house? You mean the old old Gothard umbrella Uh of authority, which is not how umbrellas work, but it has... You know, like a big umbrella at the top is like God's authority and protection is over everybody. And then, you know, the husband and the father is over the wife and the children. And it's like a 
different umbrella and under that is the you know mothers over the children and the children are under everybody yeah thanks for describing <laughs> that for people that have not seen that uh yeah that goes around in evangelical circles even though it comes out of like one of the more extreme fundamentalist ministries um the institute for basic life principles and the person who founded that and led it for many years bill gothard um you know recently fell from grace through um you know some sexual misconduct scandals mm -hmm. uh, but yeah that, that picture I mean even if you didn't grow up with like Gothard curriculum in your homeschool or Christian school um, I remember seeing it in Christian middle school so yeah it, it makes the rounds isn't isn't Paul Gothard one of the people that uh, is a dominionist where he was trying to take over the seven pillars of society as he saw them I mean, I would definitely say that Bill Gothard and Bill Gothard's materials are dominionist with a with a lowercase d. You know, there are people okay. who call themselves um, dominionists, and then we could use a, an uppercase d, I suppose, like Seven Mountains dominionists who, mm -hmm. who lay out the explicit argument that, you know, you have uh, the mountain of civil government, you have the, the mountain of arts and entertainment, and so forth, seven of them, and you have to... Christians need to try to take over all of those mountains and bring them all under the authority of God. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a thing. And then these, uh, <laughs> but these kind of broad ideas about Christians taking power, um, they they come from some very specific ideological strands. One mm -hmm. is kind of charismatic Pentecostal. Another is hardcore Calvinist. There's been this weird sort of merging of these things in recent years, but um, the Calvinist one is called Christian Reconstruction. And Julie Ingersoll, who I mentioned earlier, she wrote the book on that. It's called Building God's Kingdom. Uh, and it describes how um, Christian Reconstructionist leaders like R.J. Rushduni and Gary North uh, very systematically and strategically developed curricula for um, Christian schooling and homeschools early on. And so their ideas for taking dominion, taking power, uh, which come out of a place of actually not believing in the rapture, but believing in a different kind of end times theology, the idea it's called post-millennialism, uh, that we have to build the kingdom of God on earth and then Christ will come back mm -hmm. and rule. So... Um, they popularized their ideas of taking power among people who believed in the rapture, which you might think, well, if everything is going to get terrible and then they're going to get raptured, like why would they try to take power anyway? It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird mishmash now. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, through those curricula that became very widely used, like a Becca curriculum, Bob Jones curriculum, uh, ACE accelerated Christian education curriculum, uh, that ideas like, you know, the Christian worldview and the need to subordinate all aspects of society to the Christian worldview uh, became popularized among the wider evangelical and fundamentalist community. And now, yeah, I mean, we have a large population. They're currently about 16 percent of the population, white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there are some trad uh, traditionalist Catholics and Mormons who are also on board with their politics. Um, so, you know, there's a substantial portion of the United States population that now basically believes that Christians should try to take power. And, you know, some of them still believe the rapture is going to come very soon. Many, many of them do. That's still the most popular uh, way of looking at end times theology. 
but they also believe at the same time that still the, to fight the Antichrist, they have to at least try, right? To, yeah. t- to take the power <laughs> back and maybe they can buy us some more time before Christ comes back and maybe more people will get saved as they see it. Well, I thought the idea wasn't to buy time. I thought the the idea was to take power and bring about the second coming because that was mm. a lot of what was behind Donald Trump's move of the uh, USMVC to Jerusalem, was it not? Well, there's a lot of weird tensions there okay. and contradictions. And I would say that it's not, you know, it's an oversimplification to say that evangelicals are trying to bring about the end times, uh-huh. but they are at the same time trying to pursue policies that they think that they think will lead to things that need to happen before Christ comes back. And according to like the most popular uh, eschatological, that is end times theological scheme, uh, they do believe that the uh, Solomon's temple needs to be rebuilt. Uh, so, of course, they want Jerusalem to be the undivided capital of Israel. They would like to see the whole Al-Aqsa Mosque complex raised. That is the third holiest site in Islam, by the way. So you can understand how destabilizing and threatening that is. Uh, so that a temple can be built, so that a red heifer can be sacrificed, so that Christ can come back. What, yeah. is, a, what is a red heifer? Because I, I did not um, take any Bible. St- like, I failed Bible school. Like, Good when I was you. in Sunday school, I was just like, what? Uh, congratulations. No, well, um, I don't remember the red heifer ever coming up in, in Sunday school as a kid. It's a bit obscure, but, you know, for people who really want to study the end times theology from an evangelical point of view, it does come up. So certainly I got I got informed about it to a certain extent in Christian high school. I mean, it just refers to a kind of sacrifice that was, uh, you know, part of um, the ancient Jewish faith. And um, anyway, they believe that this has to be restored before. So there's been people who actually like try to breed or try to genetically engineer red heifers that they think are like the red heifers that they had back in the day. Like, Oh, I thought it was (laughs) like... Under right-wing Christian interpretation, I thought that would be like someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's like <laughs> such a Jezebel that she's she's the one <laughs> or something like that. Uh, I mean, she might, I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but she might be a candidate for Antichrist. I mean, they're always looking for ones after the mm-hmm. old ones don't pan out. I remember when Bill Clinton was almost certainly the Antichrist. Then Obama was almost certainly the Antichrist. So, you, you know, um, but no, I mean, it's not the Antichrist who's going to sacrifice red heifers. Oh, okay. It's ultra-Orthodox Jews. Oh, I <laughs> I see. I see. We were talking about homeschool uh, curriculum, and I think that was one thing that w- hasn't been mentioned be- between the first time and the last. This time that we t- we're talking is um, there's a lot of overlap between the curriculum and, and Christian homeschooling and what white power nationalists believe. And it mm-hmm. shouldn't come as any surprise as the rise of homeschool Christian homeschooling has happened. We now see people like the alt right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of cross-fertilization there. And it's. I think we really need to, to study more to understand the extent of it. But certainly, they're in a, I mean, you can say they're in a coalition, that they are pursuing similar goals. Now, most of your evangelicals are going to deny that they're racist in any way. And I mean, many people on the alt-right, even Richard Spencer would deny that he's a racist, right? He's just like, every race wants his homeland. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, we hit the dump button, so we're good there. Um, it is not a podcast. So. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm more used to doing podcasts rather than live radio performances. I will, I, I will keep my dirty mouth clean for the rest of today. <laughs> uh, right, so white evangelicals, though, I mean, they're not going to tell you, like, oh, yeah, we want a white ethnostate. But de facto, they definitely want white people to be on top and have all the power. I mean, they, they're they searching for kind of like, you know, 
hierarchy, which would definitely put white men on top. Um, they mostly will not admit it out loud these days, but they're the whole modern movement of the, the current Christian right, I mean, it did start there from concerns about desegregation and that sort of thing. And people who were already kind of scheming in like the 1960s, like Paul Weyrich, who later founded the Heritage Foundation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, were definitely thinking along those lines. Like they were very overtly racist, but uh, they've learned to be, they've learned to mostly not say that part out loud anymore. Yeah, <laughs> but we also have an administration that is saying the loud, the quiet part out loud too. Yeah, it's gone a lot further than you know in um, in living memory. And um, well, I guess that's not true. I mean, the 1960s are still in living. They're not in my yeah. living memory. They're not in one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. a 1980s kid. But um, same here. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, Trump is taking things further, and they absolutely love him. He's also pursuing their agenda. Um, you know, they're very explicitly weird theological Christian power, Christian supremacist agenda more than any previous president, even George W. Bush. I mean, George W. Bush still surrounded himself with uh, qualified foreign policy specialists mm -hmm. that he would actually listen to. And he would give lip service to maybe, you know, the Jerusalem thing now and again. But he actually also came out for a two-state solution, right? Which yeah. I, Trump is definitely not doing that. George W. Bush was never going to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Yeah, because he had like professionals, like mm -hmm. even though, you know, we disagree with them wholeheartedly, like Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell that were nothing but professional. If yeah. You can call, if you, and, you know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not here to praise George W. Bush. I'm no. just, I'm, I just want to make the point that while he pandered to the Christian right as much as possible to get their vote, and he did pursue their agenda on things like science denial, climate change, stem cell research, abortion, and so forth, Trump is going further in pursuing their agenda. And so you have, all the, you have this very popular idea out there that, oh, Donald Trump is just using these Christians. They're so stupid. You know, they're not stupid. They're ideological. They're, they're radical. Their leaders are actually quite savvy. They're good at... Um, presenting a kind of friendly face to the public and getting good PR and good press. And I'd say they're using Donald Trump more than he's using them. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is the Heather McCoy Show. My guest is Chrissy Stroop. She is the, I call her the Noam Chomsky of the ex-evangelical <laughs> movement. That's just what in my head. Uh, ask, uh, hashtag life goals, I guess. Yeah, life goals. <laughs> I haven't written nearly as much as Noam Chomsky. No, I don't think any human possibly can. Um, so um, you wrote an article for Playboy.com called entitled The Gospel According to Mike Pence, um, the hashtag fake Christian was created after Pence toured the McAllen border concentration camp. The Christian left atheists and agnostics have used the hashtag on Twitter to call out him as a fake Christian. Why is this term problematic? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first, I wouldn't say that it was created then. It's definitely been around a while, yeah. but it trended. It became a major trend after that. So a lot of people, they think that there's sort of knee-jerk impulse in the United States. People who are opposed to the Christian right uh, think that they want to criticize their hypocrisy. You know, they don't even really understand how the Christian right reads the Bible, but they do read the Bible and they come up with this authoritarian interpretation. And it's, you know, they have a communally mediated understanding of the Bible. Uh, they have community communally mediated praxis and religious ideas. So, I mean, they definitely are not fake Christians just from a sociological 
point of view. They have all the hallmarks of a Christian religious community. Um, but the reason that I think it is a problem is that if our knee-jerk impulse is to say, you know, you guys are fake Christians, um, what we're doing is kind of bringing an internal theological debate among Christians into the public sphere and just sort of assuming that it belongs there. Yeah. Uh, and there are a couple of problems with that. I mean, one, it's not going to affect them whatsoever. So the people who are tweeting fake Christian, they need to understand that um, the Christian right is impervious to accusations of hypocrisy. They really don't care. It's not going to change their minds. They're just going to keep doubling down, and they'll just use that as fuel for their persecution complex. These are not people whose minds you can generally change. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, this is a radical ideological group. Once in a while, if you have a pre-existing relationship with someone on another basis, you know, you can talk about these things, and maybe very slowly you can change their mind, but there's no scalable political strategy for changing their minds. And certainly trying to shame them with accusations of hypocrisy is not going to do it. Now, I don't want to say that, you know, we shouldn't shame them. They absolutely deserve to be shamed. And this I'm not coming on here to make one of these cases for empathy for the white working class, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so over that kind of analysis. But the other reason that this uh, matters, the more, the more important reason, is that it shows that we have a de facto Christian public sphere in the United States rather than a secular public sphere. And uh, it assumes kind of Christian supremacism. It assumes that people who are Christians are going to be morally good people. And do we really want to go down the road of thinking that Christianity makes people morally superior and that Christians, real Christians, quote unquote real, are incapable of committing atrocities? I don't think we want to go down that road. I mean, do you want to say that all of the, the German Christians who loved Hitler were fake Christians? I don't think that's really helpful. And certainly in a democracy where we supposedly are, you know, have pluralism and we have different groups of people of different faiths and no faith who are supposed to have equal rights and equal accommodation and a voice in the public sphere, it, it would be healthy, much healthier for democracy for us to simply say, you know, that's terrible behavior, that's undemocratic, that's anti-democratic, that's deplorable, whatever. Don't call it fake Christian, because what you're doing when you say that is simply you're, you're, you're saying that Christians are indeed morally superior, superior, which is what they already think they are. You know, so you're just reinforcing the framework that has allowed the Christian right to gain the power that they have through their strategies that they've pushed through over the last 40, 50 years. You know, yeah, we need to change the frame. And so and, and I think we really need to make a case for having a, a robust, secular, pluralist public sphere if we want to save American democracy. So let's not let's not see the public sphere as a place where we should have internal Christian debates being really prominent. You know, you want to fight the Christian right, you have to defeat them politically. You're not going to change their minds. So you can call them fake Christians, but all it does is really help you feel better about yourself. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't help. So I want to know why are they so, why is the accusations and charges of hypocrisy, like why, are Christ, why is the Christian right impervious to that? Mm -hmm. charge. You know, pretty much any authoritarian ideological group uh, is going to exhibit sort of all the characteristics on a large social scale of what we would find in a narcissistic abuser on a microcosmic scale. So they're very good at denying, deflecting, 
and, and playing the victim. So, you know, you accuse them of anything, their knee-jerk impulse is one to just sort of double down on, you know, our team can't be wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the other reason why the term, quote, fake Christian is problematic is because that's what they accuse us of being after we deconstruct. They use the term, um, you never really knew God is a common refrain, even though we fully accepted the concept of dying, dying for oneself and denying oneself in this lifetime so we can live in his forever in his kingdom another bullcrap yeah i mean that's great and it is often uh, i mean that's a great thought and it's often the case that the people who do take their faith the most seriously people who have high scrupulosity highly sensitive children who grow up in these communities uh end up becoming critical losing the faith and deconstructing whether they move on in uh, a better form of religion, a healthy religious community, or they just give up religion altogether. And for myself, I'm a non-religious agnostic now, but I'm very committed to uh, trying to build bridges between progressive Christians and non-believers and people of different faiths uh, so that we can pursue common goals based on common values. My guest is Chrissy Stroop. She is a author. Uh, her work is appeared in playboy.com as well as foreign policy. The number to the air room if you want to get involved with the conversation, 503-231-8187. That's 503-231-8187. We are taking your calls. Um, the McAllen border concentration camp is a human rights abuse in so many different ways, and tr including truly awful conditions. Um, what are aspects are of evangelical identity are at play when a vice president who claims to have a strict moral, moral code, who, which he believes is superior, can literally tour a literal concentration camp and show no remorse or any signs of human empathy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. Uh, and, you know, um, by calling it Christian, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that Christians can be terrible. That is yeah. the point that we all need to internalize. But what he's doing is upholding a hierarchy that puts men like him on top. Uh, you know, white, ostensibly straight, powerful men um, are supposed to be the leaders according to this highly patriarchal ideology. It's, it's, it's white supremacist patriarchy, you know. And so in situations like this, they're going to put emphasis on uh, obeying the law. They're going to say that the people crossing the border are criminals, so they brought this just punishment on themselves. They came here illegally. They'll cite uh, Romans 13, you know, that basically says that Christians should obey the law. Of course, other times they cite other verses when, for example, they want to uphold, say, the so-called right of a pharmacist not to provide birth control or um, hormone prescriptions you know, on the basis of the pharmacist's religious beliefs, well, then they'll they'll use other verses to say, well, you have to obey God rather than men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, yeah, ignoring the whole public accommodation laws. But right, yeah. so exactly, you know, Christian supremacism, like any kind of uh, far right or just hard hardline uh, totalizing ideology, uh, hypocrisy is absolutely 100% built into it. It is part of the <laughs> it is part of the structure, but that doesn't make it fake. <laughs> no, no. Well, I thought it was one of those things like um, it, when you're in a fundamentalist structure of any kind, there's certain things that you just lose a knack for remembering and knowing. Mm -hmm. One of mm -hmm. those is like wordplay. Mm -hmm. um, so when gay marriage passed, I remember like listening to right wing Christian radio, and they're like, "Don't worry, God is still on the throne." And it's just like, "Oh, is he is he constipated?" Like. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. 
Um, so there's this other hashtag that I've been playing with some hashtag epic Christian fails. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which works well for things like that. And I've started a monthly uh, blog post series on my blog, which is called Not Your Mission Field. It's at cstroop.com. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, you're fine. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so um, anyway, uh, if you want to you know, submit something for possible consideration for the blog or just play with the hashtag, feel free. It's it's kind of fun. I mean, there's there's a <laughs> lot of just really like tone deaf and bizarre stuff that right-wing Christians put out because their whole sort of way of thinking makes them kind of clueless. <laughs> yeah, I remember the softball team that was Christian Life International and then they put a cross on it. I cannot say the word on the air, but you just Seriously? look up. The, yeah. They, <laughs> even, even, even the full word? I cannot say the full word on the air. So, oh. the, yeah, the, um, so anyway, yeah, there's been a well, lot of We've got to change that. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing I'm learning, actually, as I'm hosting this show is there's, I had a guest on who was talking about community building and um, basically there was a um, gay bar in Germany um, where like this unlikely group of people came together and Mm -hmm. they basically tried to fight landlords and, and basically institute rent control within their community. And then the name of his former restaurant was something I couldn't say on the air. And it's, Mm -hmm. and so with FCC rules, not only, prohibit expression they also silence like gay culture and mm. that you have to be very sterile when you're on the air and i've, I've learned now, that there's can can one say the name of uh you know quote unquote male genitalia although we recognize that of course genitalia only is not in the a medical term so like oh. that, that's the that's the reason that's the reason why podcasting has been more like more people are interested in it is because mm-hmm. first off like if the Heather McCoy show was on five days a week, you'd get bored of me. That's that, <laughs> that, that's first off. Any any human being with a right sense of mind would get bored of me five days a week. And the second, and, and you can listen to it at your own time. You're not having to be here at 10 a.m. <laughs> on a Thursday morning. So, I mean, there's a reason why time shifting and that, that's definitely taken over. And so, like, that's part of the reason why I really wish that any candidate, as part of their their communication policy, will knock down the seven words you can't say on the air because it's erasure of queer identity as well as um, against free speech rules, to me at least. Mm-hmm. Um, you write that the former White House press secretary, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, along with Pence, has mastered the art of, quote, lying for Jesus. Can you pull apart that concept <laughs> further? Sure. I mean, well, we've all seen Sarah Huckabee Sanders just flat out lie to the public many times. And we also know that uh, she is a devout evangelical, the, the daughter of this pastor who was run for president, Mike Huckabee, former governor. Um, so that's that's awkward, right? I mean, giving fal- bearing false witness is one of the Ten Commandments. Lying is supposed to be a big sin. But what happens again in any sort of like hardline ideological authoritarian group uh, in this kind of Christo-fascism, for example, that we're seeing here in the United States is that um, there are sort of sacrosancts, I would say capital T truths Mm -hmm. that uh, override facts, right? And we saw this early on in the Trump administration when Kellyanne Conway gave us the phrase alternative facts, um, from uh, from which I uh, ultimately derived the hashtag, hashtag Christian alt facts, uh, because, you know, right-wing Christians have been doing this since like forever, you know, defending young earth creationism against modern science and their anti-abortion politics against modern science and so forth. So this higher sacrosanct truth must be protected by the community at all costs. It's tied to their very identities. And so to give up these 
these higher what they see as capital T truths would be uh, would, would would cause identity loss would cause intense uh, cognitive suffering so uh, it's a huge ego threat to them and they and they don't want to do it so they construct this whole apparatus of alternative facts to to protect it and when you have what you see as the higher good uh, you know come up against actual facts that anyone can observe like the facts for example that in the concentration camp that Mike Pence visited uh, these men were in overcrowded conditions they couldn't mm -hmm. lay down they hadn't been given access to showers they weren't getting toothbrushes uh, and he would he went you know after that and said well the conditions are just fine um, you know it's what he sees in his twisted mind and it is a twisted authoritarian mind I mean he's not a good man um, he, he sees the higher truth there of his kind of Christianity is protecting this kind of authoritarian government where they can ban abortion, where they can roll back women's and LGBTQ rights as more important than telling the truth about what was happening in that concentration camp. So he just, it's like a switch flips in his brain and he just, it's easy for him. So it's like the ends justify the means. The ends justify yeah. the means, lying for Jesus. It's totally the thing that they do. How does that play out in everyday life within fundamentalist Christian communities? I mean, in fundamentalist Christian communities, you'll again see these patterns very often of uh, denial, deflection, cover-ups of abuse, uh, all kinds of things like that. You know, so um, people get into into denial, for example, when say uh, a beloved pastor or youth pastor that they consider an authority is accused of sexual misconduct, and they don't want to hear it. And we are starting to see some pushback from within the evangelical community itself. People like D. Parsons at Vartburg Watch. Um, particularly it's women, you know, they're starting to be really dedicated to trying to uncover abuse in evangelical circles, and yet it is still a, a major pattern. Authoritarianism is a kind of abuse. It's gaslighting on a large social scale, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so it creates space for all kinds of other abuses, physical and sexual and so forth. Yeah, I was I was at the Oregon Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in Gladstone, I think, two or three weeks ago because my relatives still belong to the faith and I wanted to see them. They had a used book sale where they were selling used books for two bucks an inch. I looked through the books and in one section there is a book by noted abuser Bill Hevels and then another one by Roger Ailes, right stacked next to each other. <laughs> uh, what is it about evangelical culture that makes them so blind to abuse? Uh, sorry, what was the question again? What, what makes uh, evangelical culture so uh, blind to abuse? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's it's that very sort of authoritarian ethos. It's that they are so committed to these this idea of uh, patriarchy, and though they don't admit this part anymore, de facto white supremacist patriarchy, to keeping their privilege, to keeping themselves in power, and denying that they even have privilege. Just like classic abusers, they they play the victim constantly. Um, they they simply exhibit all those characteristics of authoritarianism. And in any kind of authoritarian system, abuse is going to be rampant, as we've seen for a long time now in the Catholic Church with the scandals coming out over decades. And now we're seeing more and more abuse scandals coming out in evangelical churches. And I expect that we'll continue to see that happen. And I think some of the reasons why the abuse scandals haven't happened as much as far as coming out in evangelical churches is for the large part, they're not one concentrated hierarchy like the Catholic Church. And so right. you can't really, you can, we have seen uh, troubled ministers move around, but then there isn't the systematic cover up unless it's um, like something like Bill Hibbles where he had multiple campuses that were happening. and. We were, the, even that took a very long time to come did. out. I mean, Bill yeah. Hybels was was, Hybels, a, yeah. was a was a leader in uh, creating these kind of modern mega churches, starting back in the 1970s, and they really began to take off. I, I 
think not really till about the 90s, but he was sort of forging the way there of this kind of bringing this corporate leader ethos to uh, to Christianity and emphasizing, okay, we're going to make it relevant and cool and hip for the kids, right? And we're going to keep all the terrible theology, all the authoritarian theology that says men are superior to women and so forth, uh, but we're going to make it cool so people will come and we'll make it a big rock show. You know, we'll make these church sanctuaries, well, they'd call them auditoriums instead. You know, they change the names. They don't call them bulletins. When you get the little program, the little information mm-hmm. that you, you know, pamphlet with information that you get when you go into a church. They called them programs rather than bulletins. Um, you know, he um, he kind of forged the way there. And people also thought he was better than a lot of other evangelical pastors because he did put women in some positions of leadership in the church, which is always controversial among evangelicals. But then, as it turns out, he also tended to groom those women and other women under his authority. And he had a very authoritarian leadership style that was mostly kept behind closed doors until these revelations came out. Yeah, and then there's usually the redemption tour because I think um, Mark Dreskall, who he didn't have, I don't remember him having as serious problems as Bill Himmel's, but he's back in Arizona and he, he recovered from Mars Hill and it looks like he's kind of back on, you know, it's like, I have been redeemed, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, you can always play the forgiveness card and it's really interesting how it's weaponized because... Uh, the way that forgiveness tends to work in evangelical and fundamentalist Christian communities is that people are asked to forgive uh, the people who have the most power and to forgive their abusers and just move on. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of never the other way around. In fact, women who are abused, uh, children who are abused are often shamed, uh, sometimes before whole congregations. And particularly when, you know, girls have been molested in evangelical contexts, they often have been accused of playing a part in their own abuse and they're told to ask for forgiveness as well. And then, okay, he forgives you, you forgive him, and we all move on. Um, it, it's, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It looks like we do have a call. Um, yeah, uh, I don't see the name, but you're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. And can you turn, turn off your radio? I think I hear myself in the, uh, the echo. How's that? That's better. Thank you. Hey, you touched on this, but the Catholic Church, uh, there was a guy from Canada talking about the abuse at uh, boarding schools. Yeah, okay. And uh, what that that guy's thesis was that the the priest thought that was okay because uh, Indian children aren't aren't really human. They're like a subhuman species. It's okay to abuse them and use them sexually. And uh, that's how they justified some of that abuse. Okay. Well, that's what we were talking about with the white supremacy inherent within evangelical culture. Right, right. Okay. Okay, thanks for your call. Um, One of the points that you make is is that, uh, quote, if we can't imagine Christians are capable of atrocity, and then as you mentioned earlier in the show, you had a greatest hits list of their atrocities. We are not living in a truly secular society um, the idea that Christians are fully capable of committing atrocities does not get pointed out often in mainstream media due to what you call, uh, quote, Hindu indifference. I had Dr. Michael Brown on the show to talk about his videos being banned from YouTube for hate speech. And I posed this question to him. And this, oops, I didn't cue that up. I am full of mistakes today. Um, so let's, um, so I'll just, so basically, um, 
I yeah. So why don't we take a break uh, and then we'll get that question going. Uh, my na- my guest is uh, Christy Stroop, Christy Stroop, and uh, her um, new her entry in Playboy.com is entitled "The Theology of Mike Pence." Um, uh, the gospel according the go- to Mike the Pence. The gospel according to Mike Pence. I had to do it off the top of my head. We're going to be right back, and I'm going to get the sound cued clip up because um, I am um, on my top of my game today. This is the Heather McCoy Show. Uh, so I haven't been getting, sa- getting sound in my headphones the entire Heather McCoy Show. And welcome back to the Heather McCoy Show. We're just having an, uh, some really uh, major issues today, so I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to play the clip, but basically I asked uh, Dr. Michael Brown that uh, the question I posed to him was that um, often theology, uh, Christian theology, has been on like the, a really losing case or losing cause uh, I pointed out in the book um, Huckleberry Finn, uh, Huck chooses to go to hell and help his friend uh, Jim escape slavery, and so he thought he was condemning his soul to hell. He acknowledged that, but then moved on. And it's <laughs> and and so like, what wider point do you wish that evangelicals would concede on this uh, particular topic? <laughs> I mean, I don't really expect them to to, <laughs> to to concede anything, but certainly I share the conviction that doing the right moral thing uh, and going to hell if their God is in charge of the universe would, would be the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the evangelical's God is an abuser. He's kind of like a giant, uh, you know, um, negging pickup artist in the sky. He tells you that you're absolutely <laughs> terrible, but he really loves you. And, you know, it's too bad you have all these flaws, but he can save you. <laughs> and only he can save you. He can solve all your problems. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. Do we know if he's slipped any Mickeys in anybody's <laughs> drink at all? Um, so another really big story um, outside of Mike Pence and visiting a, a concentration camp and saying everything's fine. It's like that <laughs> meme that with the the dog in the fire that everyone shares on oh, Facebook. Oh yeah, this is fine. This is fine. Just sipping the coffee. Um, is that um, the author of the best-selling "A Kiss Stating Goodbye," which had the effect, if you will, of professionalizing the idea of purity culture in the late '90s and early 2000s. Well, the author is getting a, jo- a divorce, and now he's like, I don't, I'm kind of denouncing my faith, but within our group, um, basically people are saying it's not enough. Um, how is this playing out in, in 
ex-evangelical culture and evangelical culture because when I listen to right-wing radio, uh, Christian radio, I don't hear them talking about this at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm sure we're probably going to see something written about it, um, maybe in World Magazine or Christianity Today or somewhere. I haven't uh-huh. honestly looked to see at this point. Um, but uh, if they're mostly going to be silent around it, yeah, they probably they probably will because they do have this this tendency to just sort of erase people. But I'm sure there's going to mm-hmm. be some commentary somewhere. It'll be interesting to see what it is. Um, yeah, ex-evangelicals are definitely divided on this with people having sort of getting getting pretty passionate on on both sides of the divide. That divide being there are many people who are sort of, you know, permanently skeptical of Josh Harris and uh, they think he should just go away. He should not be platformed anymore. He should not be starting a podcast. And, you know, personally, I tend to agree. He should probably take some time in the wilderness, I mean, to really sort things out. Um, but I was actually impressed by his most recent apology to the LGBTQ community. It was much more of a real apology than any statement I've ever seen from him before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it might have been a thing where after the divorce announcement, they kind of saw how people were responding. Maybe they tested with focus groups. Who knows? Like, this is a very, very famous guy, uh, at least in, in certain circles, right? Um and he presumably made a lot of money on that book over the years. Before all this happened, he did uh, have have it pulled from the shelves, you know. So he he recognized that it did some damage, but he didn't back down from the underlying theology at all, which is this whole idea that sex uh, and even like sexual feelings really are only acceptable in one man, one woman marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, purity culture is just it's intensely damaging to people who grow up with it and it's disproportionately damaging to women and queer people. Um, on the other side of the divide are those who say, well, now he's deconstructing, he's one of us, he's an ex-evangelical and we should show him some grace. And, you know, the main argument for um, the more skeptical group would be that, you know, this isn't just like some random person who believed these horrible things. This is a person who uh, was kind of the poster child, the mouthpiece for the most awful aspects of purity culture that even in, like that came from radical homeschooling culture mm-hmm. where you're not even allowed to date. You have to court people with parents having a big role in who you would ultimately marry and you shouldn't even kiss before you get married. And then people on the other side say, well, yeah, but he was 21 when he wrote that book and he was saying what the adults around him wanted him to say and they made him and he's a victim here too and you know he he is but that doesn't mean that those who are extremely harmed by his book have any obligation to forgive him yeah you know certainly no one can forgive him on behalf of anybody else that's an individual choice and it's hard for me to determine that because i deconstructed around the time same time that was published and then um basically the reason i came back to ex-evangelicalism is as as far as like recounting my past is um, during the W. Bush administration, um, a former KPFA host wrote a book called With God on Their Side about the George W. administration. And then a former Nixon White House aide, Ken Phillips, wrote a book called American Theocracy. Mm, That's a good book, American Theocracy. Yeah. Um, And so... Uh, like uh, it just like I for I didn't I knew that that culture existed, but I didn't know how deeply ingrained it was within mm-hmm. that. So I wasn't personally scarred by de- Ikea's dating goodbye. Mm-hmm. But if you do go to if you become a part of the ex evangelical movement, because if you are one, you should probably be there. Um, 
like you can see how it deeply scarred people gay like straight cis um so like it feels like i really shouldn't comment on that because i was not affected by that book at all i mm-hmm. was gone already mm-hmm. but at the same time I can see both sides of the debate because he did do some lasting damage that mm-hmm. is probably going to take years. And it's when I say lasting damage, there's people that have never had um, like a sexual partner, so they don't know what they want, enjoy. They don't know what they want, and mm-hmm. then when they finally do meet that partner, um, they don't have any. They don't have the language to say, "Oh, I'm into this" or "I'm not into that." And mm-hmm. then th- those are like lifelong structural problems yeah. that this man introduced into their lives. Trinity culture has has destroyed lives. I mean, it it cause a lot of kids to rush into ill-conceived marriages, uh, a lot of women to get into abusive marriages, uh, a lot of people to think that, you know, living with misery is just what God wants them to do. So yeah, it's, uh, it was, I mean, an immensely destructive ideology that he really sort of became the face of. Yeah, and I think a lot of secular listeners that maybe have never been around evangelical circles, it's a common thing for, you know, um, teenagers get married very young because they have to you know they 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 feel the urge so to speak and (laughs) so like they they're like oh we have to do this according to the rules and then that has some disastrous life outcomes yeah and a lot of people um you know who lived through this and then end up divorced they say that they feel like it was sort of a bait and switch like they were promised that if you just follow these rules exactly you'll have this most magical marriage with like the best and most awesome sex ever and that's not how anything works no no not (laughs) at all um you started a new podcast you you're a new resident of the city of portland oregon so i'm one of those people that oh thanks Uh, i'm one of those people that everybody hates who moves here and drives up the rent prices but hey i didn't move from california i moved from indiana so hopefully you forgive me (laughs) (laughs) so what's your new podcast about uh, it's called Global Crossroads, and uh, it's I'm, I'm really excited about it because I will definitely carry my interest in religious ideology into it, but it's one where I'll be wearing primarily my foreign policy hat. And uh, the, the other co-hosts are my friends Deepak Singh and Deirdre Sugiuchi. Um, and yeah, we're going to talk to a number of guests to address issues of global importance, um, Things like you know rising right wing populism across the world, international right wing networks, um, feminist issues, violence against women, uh, religious conflict, nationalism, geopolitics, and and so forth. Um, so yeah, we've got some uh, exciting guests lined up already. Uh, we've got Mona Altahawi, who is um, an Egyptian-born American uh, writer and journalist, a Muslim feminist. She does amazing work. Um, We've got my editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, James Palmer, coming on soon. Uh, he's also done some really amazing work. Uh, he's been a big advocate for the Uyghurs in China uh, who have been put into these re-education camps. You know, it's a, a Muslim population that lives in Western China and Central Asia. Um, he's putting us in touch with uh, some Uyghur immigrants as well, so hopefully we'll get one of them on the show. And we also have the um, writer and journalist Natalia Antonova coming up, and she's also a podcaster. Uh, she's really brilliant. She's a fun Twitter personality. So those are, the, those are the guests that we will have in the coming weeks. We're hoping to do about two episodes a month. That's really cool. Um, as you were talking about international right-wing movements, uh, the one that I know of that I think a lot of people that follow this know of is Scott Lively, who is known to... Uh, but he's an American. I think he's based mm-hmm. out of Southern California. and uh, he, He's in Massachusetts. Oh, he's in Massachusetts now. Mm-hmm. Okay, at one point he was like in Irvine or something like that. Uh, and then 
um, he basically went to different countries in Africa and had basically kill LGBT laws passed all over Africa. Um, yeah, he was a major advocate for them. And I mean, it's a question of how much he influenced those processes. He also has been doing the same kind of thing in Eastern Europe, in Moldova, in Russia. I wouldn't give him credit for Russia's anti-gay laws. I think Russia was very much on that trajectory on its own. But it definitely mm-hmm. is important that we have these international right-wing networks. I mean, he's a notorious figure in in those networks, certainly influential. So what other networks are we missing? Uh, So there's a lot of organizations that we could look at. One of the most prominent is the World Congress of Families. It was founded in 1997, and uh, it's based out of Rockford, Illinois, but it's been a Russian-American concept since its inception. Because, um, you know, there's actually, I've, I've done some of the work on this as a, as a historian. I do have a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford University. And um, a, a lot of right-wing Christians have been very interested in, in Christian Russians and Russian anti-communists for a very long time. And they mm-hmm. also got super interested then in post-Soviet Russia, where part of that old Russian Christian sort of imperial ideology has been recovered. And Russia is now a right-wing um, state that promotes religion uh, through the state. Uh, Putin has definitely gotten closer and closer to the Orthodox Church over time. And at the same time, Putin also relies on religious leaders from other communities like ultra-Orthodox Jews and, and Muslims uh, to prop up his uh, politics, you know. But um, yeah, the Orthodox Church definitely has the, the occupies the first place there. And the Russian Orthodox Church, um, people from the Russian Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Christian believers have been working closely with uh, Western right-wing Christians, Catholics and Protestants uh, since the, the 1990s to build structures where they can strategize, get together, uh, share ideas for um, creating legislation to try to roll back uh, women's rights and rights of the LGBTQ community and so forth to promote the so-called pro-family politics in a, in a global way. Yeah, and I think a lot of, um, during the Women's World Cup, Megan Rapino is outspoken against Trump, and I think a lot of the, the objections from the right-wing community wasn't that so much, yeah, it was because she spoke out against Trump, but it, I, she was... Being, she was being gay in a public figure, and that mm-hmm. would—that's just unacceptable. And I, I would not hesitate for—they would not hesitate for a second to have Putin's anti-like gay propaganda law here, where just oh. being out is considered propaganda. No, they, they love yeah. it. And you know, many many prominent figures have gone to Russia to cheerlead for that, and have cheerleaded for it. Um, you know, in American public space, Franklin Graham, for example, Billy Graham's son, who now heads, uh, you know, the Billy Graham Ministry. Yeah. Well, we we only have a few minutes left, or a few seconds left, actually. So, I want to have something fun to end on. Um, <laughs> think we you spoke about uh, the Liberty. Uni- uh, we haven't actually talked about Liberty University. Um, uh, it's Jerry Falwell Jr., right? Yeah, yeah. I always forget their names, uh, and so he has an interesting problem with the pool boy <laughs> in Florida. Marriages um, between one man and one woman and a pool boy, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a uh, you know super rich scion of an, a, because, a family that's basically evangelical royalty, because what's weird about <laughs> this particular story is it involves um, Michael Cohen, yeah. of Trump fame, <laughs> and it's what do you make of that? I mean, we don't know exactly what happened, except that we know that there were naked pictures of Mrs. Falwell that Cohen helped to make disappear. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, that story does not get enough press. That, that's going to be amazing when that comes out. And yeah, I mean, there's speculation about the extent to which this was involved in getting Jerry Falwell Jr. to endorse Donald Trump. I personally don't think he needed this scandal to get on board with Donald Trump. I think he would have anyway. He's a man who obviously craves power and is very authoritarian himself. There have been some other stories about Liberty University that have broken lately that show just how much he censors any kind of criticism on campus. He has direct control of the student newspaper. It's just a propaganda mm-hmm. mouthpiece at this point. Yeah. Because he, he pushed out editors who wanted to do actual journalism. Because I think that was a Washington Post piece by somebody that now works at Sojourners, which mm-hmm. is a Christian left magazine where he basically took over the entire newspaper and the writer for the Post was the last student editor of that particular newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, my guest is Christy Stroop. She writes in Foreign Policy Magazine. Um, as well as uh, Playboy.com. You've been actually published in the pages of Playboy once. Yeah, I did make it into one print issue so far. And the best part about that is Stormy Daniels was in the same issue. <laughs> that is that is pretty funny. Uh, thanks for listening to the Heather McCoy Show. Um, we're going to be back next week. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, music starts at noon. The afternoon PA block begins at four with Democracy Now!'s re-airing. This is the Heather McCoy Show. Heather McCoy Show. KBOO at the Clinton is a monthly film series that benefits your community radio station. This month, we'll screen Power of Community, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil on Thursday, August 8th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, Cuba's oil supply was cut by more than half. This film tells of the hardships and struggles as well as the community and creativity of the Cuban people during this transition away from a highly mechanized agricultural system to one using organic methods of farming and local urban gardens. Again, that's How Cuba Survived Peak Oil, Thursday, August 8th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 11 o'clock. Coming up next on Bookwaves, Richard Walensky interviews author Stephen Saylor, author of The Throne of Caesar. And at 11.30, Black Book Talk interviews Deshaun Charles Winslow, author of In West Mills. Welcome to Book Waves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Stephen Saylor, whose latest novel is The Throne of Caesar, subtitled A Novel of Ancient Rome. Stephen Saylor is the author of several novels. I think there are 16 in the Roma Sub Rosa series. Well, there are actually 14 novels and two volumes of short stories. Plus a few standalone novels, two novels that are epic history novels 